0: worship this morning in song and now we continue that worship in the word. I want to invite you to open up to Genesis chapter 50 this morning. Uh, We are going to be talking this morning uh, as we are working our way through our Advent series today, focusing in particular on the peace that God comes with Christ. And uh, just a reminder that as we think about Advent, what it's meant to do, and the reason why we call it Advent uh, is because it means to anticipate. And it means to have a spirit of anticipation that God would come in the form of a lowly babe in a manger, and he would be Emmanuel, God with us. And leading up to these moments before he comes, God begins to speak into our hearts and to speak and to talk about peace. And as I began to read on peace several weeks ago in one of my devotions, I came across uh, an author who asked an interesting question when it came to peace in particular, and the question was just simply this. He was wrestling with why does peace evade so many of us? In particular, why does peace evade us during the holidays? Sometimes Christmas is the most stressful time of the year, at the same time being the most wonderful time of the year. But the author's question was phrased in such a way that has been compelling to me over the past couple of weeks, and I haven't stopped thinking about it. And the question is just simply this How would your life look differently if you really believed that God was with you in every situation? How would your life look differently if you believed that God was with you in every situation? Now, most of the people in this room would agree to the fact or affirm the statement that theologically we believe that God is with us everywhere we go and all that we do. Theologically, we know that to be true, but oftentimes the problem is experientially. When we go through the hard times and the difficult times or the suffering comes and the physically tough times or spiritually or emotionally tough times come, sometimes we have trouble convincing ourselves. That He is with us, and we forget sometimes for long seasons, and we go into places of despair. Sometimes just for brief moments, and then and then we root ourselves back in the truth of God's word. But as I began to think this past week on this idea of what our life looked differently if we really believed that God was with us in every situation, it very quickly took me to a character in the Book of Genesis. Who more is written on this character in the book of Genesis than any other person, in the life of Joseph. And what I want to do this morning is I want to start at the end of Joseph's life with a statement that he makes that almost comes across as a throwaway statement. And then we're going to reverse a little bit and do some Old Testament theology and survey. And then we're going to come back around and we're going to land the plane back in Genesis chapter 50. So would you read with me beginning in in chapter 50, verse 15. And here is the word of the Lord for us this morning. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead. It may be that they said, it may be that Joseph will hate us and he'll pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. So they sent a message to Joseph saying this, your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. And now please forgive the transgressions of the servants of the god of your father. And then it says Joseph wept when they spoke to him. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said behold we are your servants. But Joseph said to them do not fear for i am am, am i in the place of god as for you you what you meant for evil against me but god meant it for good. To bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. And thus he comforted them and he spoke kindly to them. What's striking is verse 20. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. To understand the weight of that statement, you've got to back up to when Joseph, really even before Joseph came into existence... The story of Joseph's life, it starts all the way back in Genesis 12 where God promises to bless Abraham through the Abrahamic covenant and he promises to multiply Abraham's descendants. And so Abraham marries Sarah and they have Isaac. Isaac then marries Rebekah and Isaac and Rebekah have Esau and they have Jacob. And Jacob marries Rachel and eventually in comes Joseph. Now Joseph was actually the oldest son to Jacob and Rachel. There was one more underneath him, but the problem was was back in this day there were multiple marriages oftentimes. And so Joseph had a, a 10 other half brothers that were a part of the family tree. And so it made Joseph one of the youngest of all the siblings. And the Bible says that in about chapter 35 it begins to describe Joseph's relationship with his father. And it says that Joseph's father loved him and took eye to him over all the other brothers. And he had favor with him. Meaning that he was the one that at the table would always get the extra helpings. He was the, one of the youngest that had to do the least amount of work when it came around uh, to the chores in the house. And, and he was favored by his, by his dad. And so his dad eventually makes him the story that you know. He makes him the, the multicolored coat which in the Hebrew just literally reads a long coat with long sleeves that's ornate. It wasn't a rainbow jacket or whatever that pop culture tries to make it out to be. It was a long jacket with long sleeves. That was it. And it may have had some bedazzling and some sparkles on it. We don't know, but it looked good. And what that coat meant, it was a symbol of authority for Joseph's life. It it was a symbol that that he was basically been elevated by his father over all the other siblings. And and wouldn't you know that when you play favorites before your kids in front of the other kids, what do you think happens? I'll tell you this, no good thing happens. And all of those half-brothers watched with great jealousy on Joseph and the favor that he had with his dad. Now, what's interesting about Joseph is that God gave Joseph the ability to do a couple of things that other people couldn't. And one day when Joseph was wearing his coat, he, he gets a dream. The, the Lord gives him a dream, and he wakes up, and he interprets this dream. And then he gets a similar dream later on, and very similar in certain ways. But, but basically what the dream says is that little Joseph in his, in his amazing technicolor coat goes before mom and dad and the brothers and the sisters and basically says, one day you're going to bow before me, and I will be over you. Well, I don't know if you're a, a younger brother or an older brother, but if, if my younger brother told me that, 18 and 19 years old, those are fighting words right there. Well, one day the brothers were off in the field, and the dad sends Joseph to go check on the brothers. And so he goes with his amazing jacket and he's walking through the woods and they're out there sweating and dirty and shepherding goats and sheep, and all these kinds of things. And, and he walks up to the other brothers who had been out in the woods forever. They were tired and, and hungry and famished. And, and uh, as they see him coming up, they say, listen, we're going to we're going to plot to take Joseph's life. When well, one of the brothers convinces him, let's not do that. Instead, let's sell him into slavery. And so as Joseph is coming up, he tells them the second dream. And so the brothers just grab him by his rear end hind straps and just toss him into the pit. And there he sat, unattended to. Almost forgotten. And then they see these groups of, uh, this group of Africans coming down the road and they say, let's, let's sell him into slavery and let's at least make some money off of his life. We'll fake his death to dad. We'll make some money, enrich our pockets as well. And then no more Joseph and no more of that ridiculous rainbow jacket. And so they do. Joseph finds himself in Potiphar's house in Egypt at this point as a slave. But the Lord makes comments in about chapter 39, verse 2. He says, as he was in slavery and in bondage in Potiphar's house, it says the Lord was with him. And he had favor in all that he did, and the Lord prospered the work of his hands. And he he elevated himself, not intentionally, but the Lord elevated him because of his faithfulness and his diligence in Potiphar's house. But then you know the story about Potiphar and Potiphar's wife. She tries to seduce Joseph. And the text says, would you lay lay with me? And what it literally reads in the Hebrew, it, it has this sense of urgency and immediacy, like right now, physical intimacy, let's go. And it comes across as a command. But Joseph, steadfast in the Lord, he resists. And he says no, first and foremost, because it would dishonor the Lord. But secondly, I can't lay with you because my master, Potiphar, you're his wife. And, and that would defile his house. And look at all the things that he has given me. I won't put those things in jeopardy. But then you know the story. She takes a picture of his, a piece of his jacket and she frames him and accuses him of trying to force himself on her. And so what Potiphar does, he locks him up in jail and throws him in jail. And so now he's in jail. He's out of the pit. He's into the prison. And he sat there for some time. But then the Lord says that the Lord was with him even in the midst of the prison. And the prison guards began to put Joseph in charge over organizing everything and the food and the meals and and how things were sort of orchestrated and administered down there. And then one day he gets two new jailmates, the cupbearer and the baker of the Pharaoh, the most powerful man in all of the land. They are now prisoners. For some offense, they offended Pharaoh. And so they say, hey, listen, we've had these dreams, and, and, and would you tell us what they are? We heard that you're an interpreter of dreams. And so he tells them, that they, both of them tell them the dreams, and then this is what Joseph says back to the cupbearer and to the baker. To the baker, he says, in three days, Pharaoh's going to have your head, and you will, you will no longer be in existence. But in three days, the cupbearer is going to be set forth, and you're going to go back, and you're going to serve the Pharaoh for all the days of your life. Three days come, and wouldn't you know it, the Lord spoke to Joseph, and exactly what he said is what happened. The baker was put to death. The cupbearer goes back to be in the court of Pharaoh. So Joseph says to the cupbearer, when you get out and you get in front of Pharaoh, would you tell him that I'm in here? And would you help get me out of here? And so the cupbearer's like, yeah, see you later, Joseph. Thanks, fine. Walks off. And for two more years, Joseph sits in prison. Two more years. And then one day the Lord gives Pharaoh a pagan king. He gives him a dream. And in that dream, he goes to all the wisest people in his kingdom, and he says, interpret this dream for me. And no one in all of his kingdom could tell the Pharaoh what the dream actually meant. And then all of a sudden, one day, the cupbearer goes, oh, wait a minute. There was this Hebrew that I was in prison with, and he's an interpreter of dreams. And so Pharaoh says, summon him. And so now Joseph... Once finding himself in a pit, now he was in a prison. Now all of a sudden he is in the court of the Pharaoh in the finest palace and kingdom that has ever existed at the moment. So the Pharaoh tells him the dream. The dream is basically he sees seven cows come out of the Nile and they're feeding on vegetation. Then he sees seven more cows that come up behind the healthy cows. And these are sickly looking, gross looking cows. And those sickly, gross looking cows, they devour the healthy cows. And then after they devour them, they don't look nourished at all. They still look sickly and ill. And so he says, Joseph, what does this mean? No one in my kingdom can interpret this dream. And so Joseph says, let me go off and be with the Lord and let him him tell me what it is and I'll come back to you. So he goes and he comes back into the court of Pharaoh and he tells Pharaoh that in seven years, you're going to have seven years of plenty followed by seven years of famine. And so what your dream means is that you need to store up during the times of the good times of the seven years and you need to collect a fifth of whatever it is and we're going to put it in the storehouses to prepare for when the famine comes. And so the Pharaoh says, who could manage such a thing like this? But the Lord was with Joseph. And so Pharaoh looks at Joseph and goes, you'll be in charge. And so for seven years, he collects grain. He fills up the storehouses for seven years, a fifth of everything that came in, and he collects it. And then wouldn't you know it, at the end of that first seven years, the famine comes. And the Egyptians were the only ones that were prepared. But you see, when when famine comes, it didn't just affect Egypt. It affected everyone. It affected those back in the land of Cana, where Joseph's brothers still lived. So Joseph's dad says to the brothers, go to Egypt, they're selling grain, go buy some grain, purchase it and bring it back. Well, through a set of circumstances, Joseph ends up recognizing his brothers. And he sees them there, but he doesn't go and have a confrontation. And he begins to sort of pick at them as the way the narrative goes. And are you spies? What are you doing here? Who are you? And so he's sort of poking them in the eye. He's processing all these emotions in the process of being angry and and resentful and bitter. And then what do I do? Well, it turns out what Joseph ends up doing on multiple occasions, he, he lets them keep their money and he fills their bags full of grain and he sends them off their way. Well, eventually what ends up happening is all this comes to a head with the father. And eventually uh, Joseph tells them that if you're not spies, that I want you to bring me my my youngest brother. Bring me your youngest brother to my court and let me see him. And they know that they're caught. They know that they're found out. They know and begin to realize over time that this is Joseph, the one that we threw in the pit, that we thought we were going to murder, that we sold into slavery. And look at him. He has become the second most powerful man in all of the land behind Pharaoh. No one yielded more authority than the Pharaoh, and then it was Joseph. We'll a bunch of different interplays in the, in the Hebrew and in, in Genesis. Eventually the father comes, and, and they are reunited in a way, and Joseph takes care of the brothers and the siblings and all the children. But all the while, there's no really posture of repentance. There's no asking for forgiveness. And then comes in Genesis 50. And with all that in mind, and with all that into consideration, I want us to read it again one more time. And notice a couple of things in the text. When his brothers saw that the father was dead, they said, it will be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for the evil that we did to him. There's a couple of things that are problematic about the brothers in this moment. You see, I think the brothers in the story are you and me. I think the brothers in this story have been living in a season and in a period of grace. And we define grace, according to the New Testament, as just simply unmerited favor. And here's the reality about grace for the believer today. Is that the more we begin to understand grace and lean into grace and practice grace, the more overwhelmed that we become in realizing how much it is that we do not, absolutely 100%, do not deserve it. It's why it's called grace. It's why it is unmerited in every single way. And the Bible even goes so far as to say you were dead in your sins and your trespasses, unable to come back alive, unable with any ability to be reconciled to God, but for God. And so these brothers don't understand that Joseph has been practicing this unmerited favor and they don't get it. I think that's true of non-believers. They don't understand the depths of the mercy and the richness of our God and the graciousness of our God. And so it keeps going, and he says, they'll pay us back for all these things. And so they sent a message to Joseph. And what was the message? Your father gave this command before he died. Every Hebrew Old Testament scholar that I read this week unequivocally would say and make this statement. Nowhere in Scripture does it exist or is it implied in any which way that Joseph's father actually gave the brothers this command. And so what's happening here in this moment is that they are walking up to Joseph in a posture of deceit and manipulation in order to guarantee their own welfare and their own safety. Your father gave us this command before he died. Say to Joseph, please forgive us. And they begin to to use the, the deathbed of a righteous man to emotionally manipulate and to save their own hind skin. And so when it says at the end of verse 17 that Joseph wept when they spoke, what these scholars say is that Joseph is weeping, listening to his brothers who he has shown unmerited kindness and grace to. And he knows that they're lying in this moment. And he sees it. And so what he's weeping over is the brokenness of the sin in the life of his family. In the life of his blood and his kin. And it says he weeps. And he cries because he knows he's caught them in a lie and he knows that they're being dishonest and he knows they're not telling the truth. But then he goes on and he says his brothers also came down with a great sense of irony and fell down before him and said, we are your servants. What happens in that moment is the fulfillment of the first dream that Joseph got when he was 17 years old. When he goes before his brothers and his family and says, one day you will bow before me. One day I will be above you and over you in that way. And so in this moment, his brothers come and they fall down before him and they fulfill the word that God gave. And we are now your servants. And Joseph says, do not fear, for am I in the place of God, asking rhetorically? I'm not God. I can't forgive in that sense and with a sense of of rhetoric involved for there. And then hear the weight of these words in verse 20. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. What you intended to harm me and to hurt me, God used it for his good. Ultimately, we would say that maybe in the way that God meant it for, for our good and for his glory. But to use our suffering and our affliction, our pain, our momentary uh, affliction, as Paul would write elsewhere in First Corinthians, these are but a moment in time. Nowhere in the scripture does, does it say that God is morally accountable for Sin or morally accountable for the wrong things, but what we reconcile in the midst of Scripture is this idea that in the sinfulness of humanity's hearts, God is going to use your sin and my sin at times to ultimately lead for his good purposes. He's going to make something really bad and he's going to turn it into something really good. He's going to use it. He uses our pain and our sorrow and our suffering to bring peace. He he uses it to come alongside of us in the midst of difficult things. I ask you this question again. If you were to truly believe that God was with you through all your difficulties, how would your life change? How would your outlook change? I think what ends up happening is that we end up becoming more like Joseph and understanding this idea that we don't have to fear that what others and and people and circumstances and systems and whatever that is meant for evil against me, God is going to mean it and use it for my good. In Joseph's life, he is a reminder that in pursuing the peace of God, don't miss this picture. That God is with us whether we are in the pit. God is with us whether we are in a jail cell or in prison. And God is with us whether we are in the palace or in the slum. He is with us always. But he uses. He uses the pit. He uses the the prison, if you will, to to bring that cupbearer into Joseph's life. And then he had to wait two more years in order for the Lord to to lift him up out of those lowly places. But he used the pit when his brothers threw him in it. He used the prison when he got stuck in it, ultimately to bring him full circle where that cupbearer would remember this idea, oh yeah, there's this Hebrew that's stuck in prison and I promised to get him out but he's an interpreter of dreams. Let us bring him before your court. And he does and he interprets interprets it, and then look what God does in the midst of it. But I want to say a word of caution to you this morning about Joseph. You see, in this story, we we are not Joseph. We are the brothers. We are the ones who have enslaved him. We are the ones that have given him up. If you begin to think you're Joseph, then very quickly your line of thinking is going to be that if I'm Joseph, God is going to work all things out in a marvelous way this side of eternity. Well, the problem with that line of thinking, as hopeful as it is, and I don't mean to put you in despair, is that we experience on the level of of being human, we experience sorrow and sin and we see sickness and people get taken from us unjustly in so many ways. And would you be able to look them square in the eyes and just say, it's all gonna be okay, just like Joseph. No, the proper understanding biblically is this, is that though God may not fix it this side of eternity, ultimately he's gonna fix it on the grander scheme of eternity. Because here's what he's promised. That he shall reign forevermore. He will reign forever. And there is coming a day where there will be no more sorrow and sin. There will be no more tears and there will be no more heartache. There will be no more cancer and COVID and sickness and death. All of those things are going to go away because God has promised to dwell with us and to be with us unfiltered, uninhibited from the sin that keeps us from walking closely with him. And I think for the entirety of Joseph's life and his whole story found throughout this book in Genesis, the whole point is to make and show you that in all things, God is fully in control. And so we can rest in that. And we can believe in that truth. But I want to end here on this place and I want you to notice Joseph's response to his brothers. Now you think about all the things that got set in motion the day that his brothers sold him into slavery and all that he endured. And watch this beautiful moment in the scriptures where they come before him and they fall down before him. And he knows that they have just made up the very thing that they have said. But then Joseph says in verse 19, listen to these words of grace and humility. Do not fear. Do not fear. As for you, you meant for evil, but God meant for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive. Verse 21, here it is. So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. And thus he comforted them and he spoke kindly to them. He said, I got you. And for all the days of their life, he cared for them. He took care of their families. And all the days of their life, I want to choose to believe that these men were still wrestling and grappling with the unmerited favor of Joseph in this situation. And the same way in which God shows us that unmerited favor through Joseph's story, it also points to the bigger story. That God in his providence is bringing things in our midst and he is promising to be with us in the midst of it. And to guide us through it, that's where the hope of the gospel is. You see, trusting in Christ doesn't alleviate us from any kind of infliction. It doesn't alleviate us from any kind of pain. It doesn't alleviate us from sorrow and sickness. What the gospel does in anticipating the birth of Christ and the hope that comes with him is that God promises to always be with us in the midst of those hard times. Just as he was with Joseph, he can just be with you in the same way. Pray with me. Father in heaven we thank you for men like Joseph who leave a legacy of faith for us to talk and to see even today in this moment. And Father I pray that as wonderful as Joseph was that we would point to someone who was yet to come that is even greater. And Father we are here in this season and speaking about peace and the peace that you give can only give through your son Jesus. So, Father, we ask that he would so captivate our hearts and our attention and our time that we would would learn to love him in in deeper ways And, and we would grow in our passion and tenacity and our grit and our perseverance to tell every single person that's far from you about how you have reconciled them to yourself through Jesus. So, Father, today I pray that if there's anyone in this room that's in a pit and can't get out, I pray they'd lift up their eyes and look to you as you extend a hand to pull them out. Father, if there's anyone here today in a a jail cell, in a prison cell of bondage and sin, and instead of trying to break free from that prison cell on their own, I pray they would look to the other side, to the one that holds the keys, and that you would unlock the door and free them from their sin and free them from their shame. Father, maybe there is someone here today and life's good. They're living in the palace and everything is great. And Father, I pray that you would not have to bring us to places like pits and prisons to get our attention, but that in those good times, we would especially and still cling to you and hold tightly to you. So whether it's good times or bad times or somewhere in between, that you would be our perfect peace. So Father, would you help us do that? We pray these things in Christ's name and God's people said.